Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. As always, listeners are warned there may be spoilers here. Usually there are. Our guest today to talk to us about McCarthy and disability is Dr. Brent Klein. Brent is an associate professor of English at Hillsdale University. He earned his PhD at Western Michigan University, where his dissertation focused on representations of mental disability in the modern novel. He has published articles and chapters involving disability on Walker Percy, James Agee, Daniel Keyes, and, of course, Cormac McCarthy. His review of The Passenger's Teller Morris was published with the University of Bookman. He teaches a seminar on McCarthy every two years, whether the students like it or not. Brent. So, Brent, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. I think they like it. I, I think they like it. I uh, And I said Hillsdale University. It's, it's technically Hillsdale College. It right? is. I, I, I felt the hackles on the back of my neck uh, raise a little bit. I had a friend who was a graduate of the Ohio State University English program, and they could not say Ohio State. It had to be the Ohio State University program. And it's always a little goofy when, you know, university and and college is a bit of an error. But the university of this or the university of this is is kind of silly when people get worked up over that, I think. I shouldn't criticize. I make my students say the Dr. Brent Klein when they speak ah. with me. So I, I I can't judge Ohio State. Well, there has to be a singular focus there. And they, they just need <laughs> to understand when they walk in the path of greatness, right? That's right. Would, would you t- uh, share with us, please, just how you came to discover Cormac McCarthy? I, I suppose I'm a latter-day explorer of McCarthy because I'm one of those who came in with the publication of The Road. Okay. I was in grad school. My wife and I uh, were taking a road trip down to West Virginia, and we got it on audiobook, and we listened to The Road, and we were recently married. I didn't have kids yet, uh-huh. and I was having nightmares of those are my first dreams of being a parent in my life were nightmares of being the father looking for my son who <laughs> who did not exist it was quite an impact on me and uh and then everything sort of came after after the road i i think there's a whole generation of us that once the road came out and we read it 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 did something to us and we sort of worked backward from there and that that's what's strange about these new books then is because these are the first new books for me, since I've been in the world yeah. of McCarthy, which, uh, or at least I should say novels, um, which makes which makes it rather exciting. Well, it's a very weird time in 2005, 06, 07, because we had right in a row, No Country for Old Men, and then The Road, and then Sunset Limited. And we've been used to waiting for a number of years between them. And we have had these kind of different waves of people become invested. There's the, the group I call the OGs who came in really before he when he was still kind of a cult hero and not well known when he was mostly publishing a few thousand copies of each book. I mean, it's amazing to me to think Blood Meridian published less than 5,000 copies in the first many years it was out. And then, of course, you had the kind of all the pre-horses wave. And I think the next big wave is really the road. And then maybe after No Country for Old Men is filmed, you get another one. And now these new books have brought in new readers as well. Well, Scott, you tell me, is it is it like when someone discovered a band? I, I know you're a fan of R.E.M. 
<laughs> so is it like REM that whatever whatever album you came in on becomes your favorite album? So I was a fan of REM from really early on because my high school English teacher was their first manager's aunt. <laughs> and before they had even had the kind of award for their first real album, they had a EP, Chronic Town, and then that first yeah. album, Murmur. So my English teacher, the much beloved Mrs. Evelyn Daniel, was telling us about this band that her nephew was the manager of before even had been out in Rolling Stone, before I'd ever heard of them or Athens, Georgia, when I was trying anything to move away from the required listening in my high school, which is you had your eight-track player with the requisite Hank Williams Jr. and Molly Hatchett, Leonard Skinner, and then just for something different in case a girl was ever in the truck, you know, Michael Jackson or something like that. And then these guys came out and it slowly blew me away. Although it was weird because I was talking to someone who was talking about old REM and they were referring to the 90s album Automatic for the People. And for me, that was kind of the second phase of REM after, you know, when they had changed their style and sound. Well, that's me, though, Scott. Yeah, that's me. I uh, just like I'm coming in on the road. I'm coming in with Automatic for the People. So I, I, I don't know if the road is my favorite in the way that Automatic for the People is my favorite. But uh, yeah, just wondering if there's something to that sort of first experience. And because of the kind of writer he is, there's there's sort of before McCarthy and after McCarthy in how you're wowed by just his wordcraft right. that there's the, every experience you have after is always compared to that to that first one. Yeah. Uh, I'm still comparing my wife to my eighth grade girlfriend and I'm still comparing <laughs> everything. <laughs> everything Have we stayed in I touch saw. with the eighth grade girlfriend? Is there any Facebook? <laughs> I'm kidding. There was no eighth grade or... girl. There was no eighth grade. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. I, I ended up an academic. That's, that's proof of that. <laughs> you know, the thing is I, whereas I'm only, I'm somewhat lukewarm on automatic for people. I am a giant fan of the road and I do think it is, uh, it's, although he's, He's working in a different register than he is those novels from the 70s and 80s and in the 90s. He's still it's still amazing uh, work that he's doing there. So the fact that it's later and really I've felt as more people come in that it is really just gratitude that he finally kind of got the acclaim that he had deserved for so long and had been denied him for so long. And that's the the great thing about those last two books being kind of whooshed out you know if you can call a process that seems to have taken 30 years time whooshed out mm -hmm. accelerated out the door there's a gratitude that he did get to see the acclaim and the overall kind of rave reviews that the passenger received you know before yeah. he got so sickly and then passed away so. i i don't want to beat a dead horse with the analogy but it really is I mean, I, I think the at least among circles I run in, the road is his most famous work, even even more than all the pretty horses or yeah, blood, sure. blood Meridian. And it is like handing a, an album of a favorite band to be like, okay, this is their most famous album, but I don't know if it's their best. Right. But in this case, it's like, no, I, this 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 might be the best. And guess what? Here's the, here's their early days, and it sounds a bit different. But I think if you love this enough, it'll it'll carry into other. Yeah, it's it's when the greatest hits of the band album also looks like your playlist that you just yeah. curate yourself. And yeah, I think it's saying something when the most popular can also be at least arguably the most profound as well. So we first met 
either two years ago or a year ago at a previous McCarthy symposium. And then we were able to talk again at this recent symposium on just the two, what I call brother-sister novels. And my joke at the conference was everyone kept calling them the duology, the dyad. There were two or three other diptych. Uh, can, I give mine, like some, can, I, can I give my metaphor? What was yours? Mine is that it's, and, and this is not a criticism of, of Stella Maris, but I think it's a motorcycle and a sidecar. Ah. Because I think Stella Maris needs the passenger to exist uh, for it to go. I, I, I think I said at the symposium that Stella Maris affects me more. It yeah. moves me more, but it only moves me more because the passenger came first. That's right. I really believe you You don't have to read Stella Maris to read The Passenger, although your reading of The Passenger is enriched when you go back to it after having read Stella Maris. Completely. But you really can't get Stella Maris without having read The Passenger because all the discussions of the thalidomide kid in the cohorts, which are so interesting and profound and and really uh, engaging and kind of make you emotionally invested in that character. Are, he's not a character in Stella Maris. He's a character in The Passenger. He's only referenced in Stella Maris. There, there's an experiment to be done here yeah. with a serious reader to say, hey, read this. For, uh, a person who knows McCarthy, read Silamaris and then read The Passenger and then talk to us about what your experience is. And I don't yeah. know, maybe that actually shows something about some of the hidden parts of the form of either one of the books. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, at least at first blush, I com- I completely agree with you. There are a couple of reviews that did that very thing. Where Oh, really? I couldn't name them off the top of my head, but they talked about that at the beginning. And, you know, they drew some conclusions. One of them had not read The Passenger and drew some conclusions about a novel that were just wrong. But another one actually had some pretty interesting points to make. What was great about the symposium is it totally focused on, as I have called them, the sibling novels, you know, the older brother, younger sister novels, although technically Stella Mars is a prequel to The Passenger, although it comes out as a sequel by dint of two months later when it's published. And in many ways, this is a great symposium because every single paper there was only on these two novels. There has not been really significant research done in this field of these two novels yet. And so people are drawing connections, drawing conclusions, making some various good points. We also had several people who came to attend just to be at a McCarthy conference and like particularly shout out to August and to, I believe uh, Andreas was the name of a a, a man who came from Germany to Mm -hmm. attend. He attended every session was really great participant. And usually I have to tell you when we do these academic conferences, most people are there are participating by giving a paper and are part of that community. So to come in just as a reader to it and not be bored stiff by our, overly complex, overly complicated ways of dealing with these things sometimes was remarkable. I was impressed with these guys. And also there's a guy uh, like say hello to Jay. I don't know if they, any of them are listening to these podcasts. And a couple of the people who talked about the, the podcast are actually there giving papers, a young woman named Cassie. I don't. I, she may not be as young as I'm making her out to be. We'd have to ask her that. Did an excellent one where she was talking about some of the early drafts because she's out there at Texas San Marcos and was able to read some of those early ones. So it was a great symposium in many ways, I thought. My opinion of academic conferences is rather low. It, it's it's not and I and frankly it's, it's a dirty little secret. Nobody really likes going to these. <laughs> 
but I, I love going to the McCarthy conferences. Yeah. And the reason I love going to them is I, I was writing someone after the conference, this very thing of, I walk away from the conference loving the books more. Yeah. It's, it's actually about McCarthy. It's actually, I shouldn't even say it that way. It's actually about McCarthy's work. Yeah. Uh, I'm walking away seeing better because of people's presentations. And that's, I just don't find that happening very often. Otherwise, there's no uh, turf protection. There's no gatekeeping. There's none of the things you think of, uh, you know, not to mention state MLA by name or anything where it often is, oh, you're not at a prestigious enough university or that author's not this year's fad or you're not doing enough of a particular kind of studies that we're into right now. It's none of that. It's really just here are a lot of different ways to read these books in a way that uh, helps us dig deeper and engage it further. And for anyone listening who doesn't typically go to these, I would tell you that these McCarthy conferences and symposiums are a soft place to land if you get a chance to in upcoming years. We don't really know where the next one's going to be yet, but it'd be great when we do. So we don't we're not pick particularly when we're at these conferences in the game of saying whose was best or what was your top five or anything like that. And although I did not take a complete census, I do have to tell you, Brent, the paper you gave on these two novels and McCarthy and disability really was the one I heard referenced over and over again as one of the bright lights of the symposium and a, and a symposium of a lot of great lights on the Christmas tree. Yours may have been the star on the top of the tree. I don't I don't take that lightly because like you said there's there are a lot of good papers that make made me walk away thinking oh I what I was thinking about this book 2 weeks ago is I, at best incomplete so yeah thank you when you presented your paper you didn't really go into much of a personal angle in the subject but later in discussion you kind of broached a, a few you know elements from your personal life if you don't mind sharing that here on the podcast, just what kind of first got you interested in disability studies under the within the you know zone of literary studies? Yeah, sure. I, my daughter is severely mentally disabled or cognitively disabled, however you want to say it. So I was finishing up my coursework at PhD when we were adopting her. So it suddenly became very very interesting to me. And that's, I mean, that's pretty standard with people in the field of disability studies is that there is some kind of personal connection. The, I don't want to say ironic, it's not ironic, but I think something that needs to be articulated in it is that when you talk about disability studies, you are generally talking about physical disabilities. Right. And the distinction between a mental and a physical disability is is right that that's a porous that's a porous division there. But I I think because a lot of the people who are writing in that field themselves are physically disabled uh. or someone very close to them. But when it comes to the field of say mental disabilities and I am distinguishing that from mental illness. Sure. And there are we can talk if you want there there I think pretty clear Still porous, but pretty clear distinctions between the two. Sure. That if you are indeed cognitively disabled, you're probably not at a conference. You're yeah. probably not writing academically. So I certainly confess that this all came from a very personal place, like it does for many people. But where I really sort of 
winnowed in down was that place that was I thought I thought being discussed even less than other disabilities because there wasn't that population speaking for themselves. As as I think Catherine Pendergrast writes, to be to be disabled mentally is to be disabled rhetorically. Mm. So there there's no one speaking there. Now when it comes to disability in McCarthy, I mean I'm I'm happy to cast a wide net. I I don't I'm not just looking at mental disability or anything like that. But that's at least where I come from initially is Oh, I'm very curious about representations of disability where I differ from a lot of the field and where I feel something like a uh, an iconoclast, if not a pariah, is I'm I'm an English professor. Right. So I care about the text. I mean, I, I care about people with disabilities too, of course, but ultimately the point of my study is a text. Yeah. So rather than using a text to say something about disability and its representations in our culture, I am using cultural representations of disability to say something about the book. So in right. something like McCarthy, it's, no, I, I'm going to write something that tells me something about the passenger in Stella Maris, not the other way around. That is one of the great failings of our academic culture and of our profession. And when I say profession, I don't mean professors in general. I mean, English professors in particular since the 90s. And I think maybe it's not quite as bad as it had been, and it's changed a little bit. We'll have a tendency to study a text or two and read one book or two books in a field and think we're now experts in that field. And we operate, as one of my professors said a long time ago, as very bad social scientists. So a a social scientist who hasn't hasn't really studied the field he's talking about or statistics or demographics or any of the things you have to do to really be good at social science. We'll read a book of poetry and three novels and then one or two critical articles and an essay or two and p- position ourselves as experts, whereas the way you're doing it, which is the goal is still to focus on the text rather than on kind of fixing the world because of something you found from a fictional text just makes more sense from a training background understanding standpoint. I think you're right, but I think it only makes sense if what we're saying about the conference is true, which is if you still believe in the transformative power of literature, yeah, then it makes sense. But if literature is just one cultural artifact of many cultural artifacts, then there's no reason to study the form and aesthetics of it because it needs to lead to something which matters. And frankly, this cultural artifact is no more important than, you know, menus at different ethnic restaurants. Like it's just text and let's just see what it says about our larger culture. And, you know, I I, I am somewhat cynical to the field. I think grad school does that to a lot of us, though my grad experience was was largely positive with wonderful people. Just the the larger the larger climate is where bad philosophy and bad sociology and bad psychology goes to die right. because we we want to be important we want to keep up with the sciences and so we're making grand statements and yeah. you know a place like the a, a place like the the McCarthy conference we don't shy away from the grand statements but it's always grand statements that point us toward the text, the text is always the thing that's being revealed, and 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 I love the conference for it. So as we look at McCarthy's overall body of work, it seems like this notion of disability, either cognitive disability or physical disabilities, 
seems to show up over and over again in, in so many ways. When you and I were tossing the outline back and forth a little bit, I just did a quick kind of mental survey and five or six different things popped up in my head. And I, I don't know maybe if, if any of them occur to you or if we bounce around a few of them just to talk about how they're used in different ways and what seeing there does for them kind of as they, they come to us. I, you know, and I, I don't really know when it's all said and done. Um, it seems, for example, in the Appalachian novels, we have Lester Ballard starting off who has received, again, whatever cognitive issues he has seems to be a result of various mental trauma and physical head trauma at different times, and as well as being ostracized, and he becomes something, I don't know, I don't want to say uh, non-human, but he's certainly occupying a different space than most of us do as that novel goes on. Yeah, I, th- I mean, just as a as a generalized statement about McCarthy, I mean, he, McCarthy, he's so interested in violence. Yeah. He's so interested in the grotesque, physical grotesquerie, I think ideological grotesqueries that disabled bodies abound. Yeah. And, you know, something like Child of God, thinking about Lester Ballard as disabled, I think he is probably best understood not disabled, not mm-hmm. mentally ill. It's I think that an impulse to pathologize him might pull us away from the narrator. He too is a child of God, perhaps like you, right? Because McCarthy is almost daring us to pathologize him. Well, the last scene in the whole book is about pathologizing him, right? They Yeah, well, the community. Cut him right? up so and they, use him for the medical studies. I think, you know, a lot of criticism of of child of god and i mean that in terms of scholarship it you know talks about the community building him into yeah. this sort of freak but at least when i'm teaching it i'm telling students like go back to the first memories of of lester ballard when he was a child and everybody's saying the exact same thing about him he is marked differently i don't yeah. know if he's marked differently because of his his body, or that there's something in him psychologically that others are not capable of. But, you know, when I look at something like Child of God, when I think about disability, I think about it in in terms of a character who's unnamed, Good. but I think is, is a really fascinating character, which is, it's the child. There's a disabled, there's a clearly disabled yeah. child. Who eats the yes. and and bird legs. Exactly. And, you know, they've got the chicken wire up, I think it is, to protect him from the stove. And as he shoots, he shoots her. The junk keeper's daughter. Yeah. And then he burns down the house. And, I mean, this 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 young child is only in it for a few pages. Yeah. But I think we can do worse for ourselves than imagine this as a kind of synecdoche for everything that's going on with McCarthy and disability. because. Lester Ballard, as he's burning down the house, it says the child looked at him mutely. Yeah. And the the child has no language, which is always one of the, your necessary classifications of mental disability, at least, is, is, a, is a lack of language. And it's as though Lester Ballard is trying to get this vengeance. And the vengeance, like, uh, this child just stares at him. It's not scared of him. He wants, he's trying to put fear in her, in, in yeah. the junk keeper's daughter. He's trying to, I mean, in only a Lester Ballard way, seduce her. And none of it's working, but the child is just 
he is like the abyss that Lester tries to look into and yeah. he just looks right back at him. I think it's one of the last lines of the of the chapter or the part where it says the child just looks back at him frightless. Like he, th- this is an entity that he cannot touch. I mean, by the end of the book, he's putting on the fright wig. He's he's doing more than just killing people and, and doing terrible things with them. He's also trying to instill this horror in them. And this child can't be affected by this. So in, in some ways, he's, he's a refutation of Lester Ballard. He, he's right. not the kind of victim that Lester Ballard needs. At the same time, and I think both of these are true, McCarthy likes to do that fairly stereotypical idea of the disabled body being horrific, grotesque, a sign of an uncaring God and a cruel world. Right. Oftentimes the, you know, especially the mentally disabled person, whether it's John Robert in Blood Meridian or whoever it is, is just sort of left as, as this figure of, of look at this world. How can you think, basically, how can you believe in a good God if this thing exists? And so while McCarthy plays with that, and he certainly does in, in Child of God, I think he plays with it. And like he does with a lot of his genres, he then riffs off it. Yeah. So it, it, James Robert in Blood Meridian, when Sarah Borginis comes to him and she takes him into the water and she bathes him. Yeah. And she returns him like she returns him as a sibling to his brother. And she's basically in, in my reading saying, this is your responsibility. I have fixed him. I have cleaned him. I have made him a person again. And she returns him to his brother. And as a lot of people want to point out, which is absolutely true, James Robert then just goes back into the river yep. and starts to drown. And the judge has to save him. And the, the, the chapter heading calls it a second baptism. Yeah. That's true, but that's only because the brother doesn't take up his responsibility in the way Sarah Borginis did. So I, I think there is, you know, James Robert is clearly this, this sort of physically and mentally monstrous person. I'm trying to use scare quotes here. I, I think you can hear it in my voice. Yeah. But it's it's not as though he's just saying, oh, look at the awfulness of the world. Sarah Borginis provides a route for his brother. But his brother won't take it up. And in that vacuum, in comes the judge baptizing him in the river. You know, when we think of, you used the word the grotesque and McCarthy's love of it earlier, and the two writers who precede him that we really think of as specializing in this are Faulkner, who, of course, also dabbles heavily in, in the field of cognitive disability with, if with no one else, with Benji Compson. Absolutely. And of course, Flannery O'Connor. And with with Faulkner, he, I think, is more showing the inhuman way that Benji's mother and youngest brother treat him. He's showing how their treatment of someone like him is a reflection of who they are, whereas his older sister is so kind to him and loves him, Caddy Compson, in the novel. But with O'Connor, of course, as she gleefully spells out for us in an essay, basically says these physical deformities, physical problems, and grotesqueries, whether it's physical disability, mental disability, all this, of course, in her case, filtered through her own lupus and how that affected her ability to walk and her face kind of taking on different shapes as the disease got worse. It always reflects the fact that in the eyes of God, we are all abhorrent and loathsome to go back to Jonathan Edwards and the, the Great Awakening, right? We were all as 
abhorrent, loathsome as the the lowliest, worst insect. And we're all rocking, rot, walking over a rotten covering over the pit of hell. And although God sees us so horrible and loathsome, he nevertheless has love for us and grace for us, should we but turn to it. And so with her, it's always spinning a particular theological issue. And it's the same one, it just couched in slightly different ways. I mean, if there is any knock on the wonderful O'Connor, it is that there is a unity to her work that had she lived a lot longer, maybe would have kind of seemed like a box eventually. But unfortunately, she dies at the age of 39 with two novels and a great collection of short stories, Um, a few collections, but one big set of them. Is there anything that, I don't know, cogent or constructed in McCarthy, or is it kind of different depending on the use in each case? I do think you're absolutely right that O'Connor and Faulkner, I I mean, who's this? I can't say that he needed them to come first, Hmm. but that he is still a sort of natural evolution, though I don't necessarily assume superiority there, but a natural evolution in that line. The next step, if you will. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Benji, Benji, I I adore Benji Compson. My daughter, I I dressed her in a sweater one year for school pictures that said, I love, the sweater said, I love Benji Compson. And, you know, the the teachers are wonderful. And they're like, who's Benji Compson? And I was like, oh, I think he's one of the most ethical depictions of a mentally disabled person. That doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean he's necessarily good. Right. And again, that's not my interest as a literary scholar, but I just, I adore the the presentation of Benji. And and then what, what O'Connor is doing is, is, is yes. And I think actually that's why there are so many strange readings of Faulkner and O'Connor, O'Connor especially, because if you don't have that sort of relig- religious framework, you don't have to personally have it, but to at least know that she's working in that. Right. She had fundamentally it. misunderstand what they're doing with disability. Right. And I think I think McCarthy's a part of that as well. I think I think it's really easy to look at so many of the McCarthy works and just see the disabled as the ravages of a horrifying wasteland. Yeah. And that's that's there. Like I'm not suggesting that's that's not there. But there's always comments upon it. Yeah. And I don't think what he's sort of laying that disability upon is not as clearly faithful or devoted, not at all, like someone like O'Connor, but it still has that sort of shared DNA that instead of a divine, there's some sort of humanistic impulse that says, no, James Robert, there's something, there's something more going on here. And if there's not a God who's doing anything, there's a Sarah Borginis. Yeah. Or the reader should see the way that the disabled child in Child of God is depicted to say like, no, there, there's something more than just this ghastly freak who dies in a fire. There's there, yeah. there's something more than cheap symbolism in the, in the disabled bodies and minds of, of his entire catalog. So if I were to pick McCarthy's favorite disability to show on the page, it it would have to be blindness, right? Someone who's deprived of their sight. And we have it grotesquely described to us in The Crossing with the man who the fascists had kind of 
sucked his eyeballs out literally, but we also have people where we don't know what happened to him, but the old man and there's a man in outer dark who is talking to Kula late in the book. There's the rag picker is going blind in Sutri. And of course, in the road, we have the Eli, as I always refer to him as the anti-Elijah kind of Mm -hmm. false prophet in the latter half of that novel. So do you see, is there anything, I have a couple of ideas of what he's trying to do with that one, but I'm not sure if I'm really on, on board. Is there anything that shows up to you as he uses those characters in these ways or? So when it comes to blindness, I mean, it's, it's been used in Western culture and literature since, yeah. since Greek mythology. And there's, it generally goes one of two ways. Either the person is blind and it's a sign of their spiritual blindness right? or they're blind and they can see, which shows their others' spiritual blindness. So you have Tiresias in Greek mythology, you have Bartimaeus in in the Gospels. And so blindness, uh, you know, oddly sort of jumps back and forth between the poles of actual sight and then actual blindness. Yeah. And in a case like Outer Dark, I, I, I certainly think that that blind man at the end is closer to Tiresias. Yeah. Closer to Bartimaeus than it is to any kind of actual spiritual blindness as well. That instead Kulich has the spiritual blindness yeah. and the blind man's the blind man's ability to see focuses on Kulich's inability to see. I think he's playing in those poles because you almost have to sort of play between those two right. limits. But I do think I don't think there's a standard for him because the crossing is certainly the most sophisticated continuous exploration of what blindness is yeah and he depicts this world that that now it's blindness for him is the greatest gift god gave him because it shows him that the world is pulvo the world is dust but as the the one man at the bridge says in the crossing he's like hey the world hasn't changed whether you see it or not i i'm unconvinced that this blind man is actually seeing the world yeah as it is but instead the world has been What's the line from the road? Shorn of its referent. Yeah. And therefore shorn of its reality. So rather than blindness in the crossing being this obvious Tiresias Bartimaeus analog, he is exploring an idea of sight through the blindness, but I don't think it necessarily reveals. I'm happy to hear otherwise, but I don't think it reveals, oh, hey, Billy Parham, this is the answer. Yeah. Like this is actually the way the world works. And Billy certainly seems to be looking for that throughout the crossing and no one's ever going to just give mm-hmm. him a clear go ahead and understanding. And except for maybe the lines they tell him and it comes back again with the Romany people who help him with his horse at the end of, and it's echoed in the epilogue cities of the plane, that idea, you know, every man's death is life is a standing in for every others. And that idea where you love that man, your brother, that comes back in the epilogue cities of the plane. And that seems to be the final through line. But even the blind man at the end of or in the road, not at the end of the road, Eli or Eli or however we want to say his name, who I certainly seems, pronounce it as Eli with yeah, all its sort of I biblical did. import. Yeah. And at one of these conferences a long time ago, someone said, Was well, he Elimus and not simply an anti Elijah? And that was a priest in the during the during the Pente- original Pentecost who denied the Holy Spirit and denied the second coming or, or excuse me it denied the resurrection oh. of Christ and it's spelled E L Y M A S in most translations so you know with McCarthy you never know exactly where he's messing with you and where you don't but <laughs> it's totally true 
Well, the other way to read him is as a a kind of counter spokesperson for the one at the end of Outer Dark as well. Mm -hmm. Because here we have the boy who's been cared for by his father and is looking to create community. It's the anti-color situation in a way. And so the, the blind man's operating differently as well. I taught the seminar here at Hillsdale one year, starting with Outer Dark and ending with The Road. Ah. Cut off Orchard Keeper and there was no passenger and Stella Maris yet. And it just worked really nicely because you had these two roads, right? And the yeah. one road led to the swamp and the other lo- road led to the love of the the sun, which built into some some sense of the transcendent. And I don't know, Passenger and Stella Maris are messing that up for me. I'm not sure what to do, but... Well, for me, the end of the road, the, the novel itself and the end of the road seemed to really be the perfect summit of the career and to describe his career almost in a character arc that is perfectly resolved, I think, in many ways. And so I am somewhat a little bit bothered thinking of The Passenger and Stella Maris as the final novels. And it's easier for me to think of them as something from the 80s and 90s when he's writing them for the most part until kind of later changes and evolutions with them and and mapping them up a little bit, I believe. You may have been the one who mentioned that at the symposium, because I know someone said, you know, maybe we need to actually put these books around Blood Meridian and the Border Trilogy, because that's where he was at. I don't know if you want to say philosophically, but that's where a lot of this was being written, at least for the passenger. And I'm very sympathetic to that, just to sort of maintain that arc, which he doesn't have to have that arc. I don't have to like narrativize his his writing career. Right. But boy, it really teaches well. Yeah, it it teaches well and it rounds off nicely. You you can end with a uh, everyone bring popcorn and we'll watch Sunset Limited and (laughs) talk about its connections to the road and call it a day. And there's a lot of well, there's a lot to be said for that approach because I do think what changes with those last two books is using the biographies of mathematicians and physicists and to a lesser extent their work in a uh, symbolic way, meaning you don't really have to know a whole lot about those mathematicians, those geniuses or their works to understand the book, but they they enrich your understanding of the metaphor he's using throughout when you get them and the whole notion of entanglement and what we see is just the barest base of dross materiality and there's so much more beyond this but that's as true in plato and in the gospels as it is in modern quantum mechanics so it just kind of depends where you're your entry lane into that interstate of thought is exactly. And so it moves in a lot of different directions for that reason. But speaking on the notion of kind of mental health you brought up and also mental, again, cognitive disabilities, we do come back full circle with Stella Morris and the passenger. And you, your paper was interesting because I thought it was one of the few that mostly focused on just scenes with Alicia it, when you gave it at the symposium. So you talked about Stella Morris and you talked about the scenes between her and the thalidomide kid and not so much Bobby Western's tell such as it was. So just how do you see, uh, maybe we can come back to the thalidomide kid in a second, 
but just in general, what were some of the maybe thoughts you you had regarding the subject with Stella Morris? Not to have you read your 20-minute paper all over again for us, but maybe just hit a few of the highlights there for this. Yeah, so essentially, to hit the high notes, I, I am arguing that, you know, it's funny, you you mentioned going into the symposium, uh, no one had talked about it, there wasn't a lot written about it. So I wrote this paper, and I thought, you know, my paper is just building off the idea that the thalidomide kit is real. Like, right. I... You don't have to believe that, I don't think, for this paper to work, but I do, and I'm not spending any time on it. And I don't know about you, Scott, I didn't pull the room, but it seemed like 100% were right there on board of, no, these. There's, this is not just some emanation of a schizophrenic mind or anything like that. Is that fair? I think the room came into it with people with a, probably a small group who maybe still think they're the products of a diseased mind. And there are a whole lot more people who were like, I was kind of going into it, ready to think there's something more going on here. And then a, a final group who definitely already thought he's a real character and not simply a hallucination. And I really felt like the people who were in the middle, like I was, a whole lot more of us were in that final camp of believing he's a real character and not simply part of her, again, a, a product of schizophrenia after the things you talked about in your paper. And he certainly is much more interesting and her emotional connection to him is much more interesting than if he's simply a hallucination. And for that matter, it really makes Bobby's story make more sense. Yeah, I, I think reading, and I'll be honest for, for anyone who disagrees, I do think this reading comes from a first step, just effectively, I enjoy the book more if yeah. the thalidomide kid is real. Yeah. Because it because I don't see Alicia, I, I, I don't see Stella Maris as this detailing of a broken mind. I mean, you, talk, you no. were talking about Flannery O'Connor earlier. She, she, that's her famous letter and retort to the to the teacher who writes about a uh, good man is hard to find. Of like, <laughs> if this is just about abnormal psychology and this is all the emanation of someone's mind, what are we doing here? Like, this yeah. doesn't matter. And I'm, you know, that's certainly said stronger than than I would think in different readings of of the passenger and Stella Maris. But yeah, I'm essentially arguing that Alicia Alicia has looked through the Judas hole. She has in her in her genius, whether because of her genius or or just in effect or cause, I don't know. But she has seen through the Judas hole and she has seen that unconscious world, which suggests something more right. than just our evolutionary place. And in response to her trying to make sense of a reality in which that exists. She has been sent messengers. Yeah. And that messenger is first and foremost the thalidomide kid. So that's what I take at almost at the level of assumption. And the reason I do that is because that's just that then causes all the interesting stuff. Yeah. Because if this guy is a messenger from the great beyond, what kind of message? Like, what in the world is he? Yeah. He's he's a dwarf with flippers with hands, scar scars all over his head. 
He's foul-mouthed. He's impatient. He doesn't have a lot of information. He brings a vaudeville troupe that's not very good at their job, certainly right. not an effect, but I think even platonically are not good at their job. Why? What is this? I mean, that is, you know, I tell students, like when you're going into to write on literature, lean into the thing you don't know. Don't lean into the thing you do know. It'll make you love the literature even more. Lean into right. the thing you don't know. And for me, it was just, what, why him? Yeah. And what I what I found is that his status, his physical status, if we want to call him disabled, I mean he's he only exists seemingly in her mind. He doesn't have much interaction with the world, though he might ride the bus. He is disabled. And so then this question of well, why him? Like, why him? Yeah. Why thalidomide? Yeah. And I think that ends up being a important key into unlocking what is going on in Bobby Western's story, what's going on in Alicia's story, and I think what's going on in McCarthy's sort of wrestling with metaphysics. And it does give you a kind of answer, of course, to the that those closing chapters with Bobby when he runs into the Thalidomide kid, when he runs into the ghost of John Shedden. And you you have a basic question, okay, is this novel at some element a particularly beautiful, well-wrought metaphysical fantasy, or is it a novel of a man whose mind is deteriorating? And that's the choice you have to make with Bobby. Yeah, I, I think it's the same choice you make with Don Quixote. Yeah, well, and Stella Morris coming after the fact almost seems to change how you're going to read those ending chapters. Because it's probably pretty hard to make a case that it's not simply a case of his mind deteriorating until you read her cognitive crispness and intellect and intelligence. And again, she's always playing three-dimensional chess while everyone else is playing checkers in, in Stella Morris. So I don't, I don't know. You know, it moves us in some interesting directions there. Yeah. And, you know, if if someone did read Don Quixote right. and said... Uh, oh, this is a story of a guy who goes crazy, and uh, it's good for some laughs. There's some bathroom jokes in it, and uh, here's what it historically means in terms of the development of the novel. And really, really sends up the medieval. Yeah, great. I'm like, know, okay, courtly that's, romance, pretty well. That that's fine. I'm not going to argue anyone out of that reading. I would just, I'd say, like, but so many Western writers have looked at Don Quixote, yeah, and seen something profound. Even Christ-like in Don Quixote, something else is going on here. You know that ending where Sancho Panza—they're like, they're, "We want to go with you. Like, we, we will go off and be shepherds." Yeah. This idea, I think, is very similar to what my reading of is doing in in the Passenger, and I'm not suggesting the Passenger is Don Quixote or anything like that in terms of its its weight, but I do think, yes, I think that reading is there. I think that reading is there, which is, this is Bobby Western's manifestation of his grief. His sister has told him all about the thalidomide kid. And I think you could look at all of the other texts of McCarthy and say, where's the overtly supernatural? Yeah. Where are angelic visitors? Where are otherworldly passengers? And that's that's completely fair. But I think this is doing something more overt that is nevertheless present in other McCarthy novels. In in the same way right. that when you read Moby Dick, Fadala's visions, his prophecies yeah. come true, and Gabriel's prophecies come true. 
And it's enough to point you to say like, no, we are dealing more than just with some crazy people who got lucky. We are talking about something metaphysical here. Yeah. And Steve Fry likes to point out how just like you see in the romantic writers of the 1840s and 1850s and 19th century American lit, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Edgar Allan Poe, there's always a place where did this strange spooky thing really happen? Or not. You can read Young Goodman Brown as a dream, and you can read it as a gothic story where a young guy encounters the devil dressed up as his grandfather. And the meaning of the story is the same either way. It's hard to hold on to your faith when you lose it, and you mm-hmm. need to hold on to it, or the end of your days will be bad. And the meaning's the same either way, but you can read that story completely supernaturally or completely naturally. And the same is true, of course, for Follow the House of Usher. And any number of other of those middle 19th century Gothic texts. And so we come to McCarthy and there's some very clear, odd stuff going on in Outer Dark, which of all his novels is, I would say, the least realistic in terms of its peculiar shifting Gothic landscape, the swamps Mm -hmm. and mountains all being in the same space, which typically geographically they're not. And you see it, of course, with the judge in Blood Meridian. I don't know many people. I think there are many readers who love to speculate on the fact that we don't know for sure who or what he is. But I don't know anyone who would say he is only completely a normal guy everyone's freaked out about. Because it's just too much. Again, you can understand someone not wanting to commit more than, yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? But I can't see anyone wanting to say, nope, there's just nothing going on here. He's just a guy. It, nothing really supernatural seems to happen externally, but a lot seems to happen internally in the road. And so I, I do think this book, this this question, this romanticist element, this fantastical element is somewhat consistent with some of his earlier texts. And maybe not, again, you know, the Border Trilogy or the Orchard Keeper which may be more the more prosaic works in terms of where they are. But even that guy at the end of Cities of the Plain that he talks to about the dream, that guy has an awful lot. And he seems like a bit of a messenger himself, doesn't he? You mean you don't tell dreams that way, Scott? No, I, I, well, my dreams are typically either I am wearing socks on a frozen lake being pursued by a group of alligators. Wait, really? Yeah, that was what, that was a recurring nightmare. I had about three times. I was 12. And then when I was about 14, I carried a shotgun into the dream, and that was the end of that. Very strange, recurring nightmare I had. Or, you know, it's just very strange. My dreams never really make good sense when I wake up later, and I don't retain them very well. It's almost as though dreams in literature aren't real dreams. <laughs> yeah, as if as if some writer's just making them up to make them cool. <laughs> well, there have been some pretty good studies to say if you look at how dreams are represented pre-Freud and post-Freud, there's a big difference in how they're regarded and how they're written. I mean, there's a certain way of seeing them as typically prophetic and important, but not really, really significant from a telltelling standpoint mm-hmm. before Freud. And then after Freud, you always are getting a lot of good stuff in there about the dreams from that point on. That's one of the good things he did then, because uh, amateur amateur dream interpretation is always a fun dinner party. Yeah. Always a funny dinner party event. Well, I think I'm just going to memorize Cities of the Plain, the end of Cities of the Plain, and then I'm going to tell everybody, hey, I had this dream. And I'm just going to read the entire scene from memory and see how they respond. If you can do that, you can probably do a pretty good one-man 
act and, and play there at the college and, you know, give your students credits too. Anything else about the thalidomide kid in general? Just the fact he's, you know, rendered as this victim of, again, is it supposed to be the thalidomide that was given out as the antidepressant that caused so many profound birth defects? Is he meant to represent this kind of O'Connor-esque grotesquerie of a of a character? Or? Yes and yes. Okay. Uh, I, th- I think, I mean... And and also, what's great about the symposium is just it's it's sort of like talking out loud to some degree. So yeah. sort of working through stuff out and 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 to be able to say to a group of people in the room, "Hey, I'm really not totally sure." So if if you've got something, let me know. But you know, I, I mentioned at the end of the paper that I do think the thalidomide kid has a precursor in literature, and I, I think it's one of McCarthy's favorite writers at least one he mentions in the famous New York Times interview, is Fyodor Dostoevsky. Right. And in Ivan Karamazov's dream or nightmare, however it gets translated, you have his devil who shows up, who might be a hallucination, yeah, but might not. And he's the classic sort of sarcastic, wisecracking devil who's irking the person who has the vision, but also is an insult to Ivan Karamazov, because Ivan Karamazov is this intellectual who's building thought experiments that can seemingly bring down all of Western theology, if not Eastern theology as well. And here comes this devil wearing pants that are too tight and out of fashion and, <laughs> and doesn't wears a strange hat, like looks all out of sorts. And I do think that McCarthy is at least in effect, I can't say in intent, but at least in effect, there's a riffing off of Avon's devil and that the thalidomide kid is, his essential characteristic is that he's shabby. Yeah. He's just, he's not particularly good. Again, scare quotes around that word, but he's not good at anything. He's not physically good. He's deformed. He's ugly. He can't count. He isn't good as a troop master. He isn't good at giving Alicia information. The first time he meets with Bobby, he's getting angry at Bobby and making fun of him for the questions he's asking. He, at one point when Alicia goes through the EST therapy, the electroshock therapy, he comes out like like a Looney Tunes character, all charred. And, yeah. And that's ridiculous because he's he's so vulgar. So he's giving these vulgarities in the same way that you would imagine Elmer Fudd. It just, these things don't go together. And he's just less than what the brilliant Alicia seemingly deserves. And I do think, you know, there are books about here's McCarthy's theological vision and, or here's his Gnostic vision and things like that. And I'm interested in these books and I'm, I'm an open reader to these books. But I find in McCarthy a writer who, I mean, the term, again, to bring back O'Connor, it, I mean, this. there's no talk of O'Connor without the word haunted coming yeah. up. And I do think McCarthy is haunted. And I don't think he's necessarily haunted by Catholicism. I don't think he's haunted by something particularly doctrinal. But I do think he's haunted by a sort of metaphysical reality of the divine. And he can't run away from that. But at the same time, he can't convince himself of it. And I think... The thalidomide kid is a great representation of something which points to a beautiful creator. That there's something more out there that cannot yeah. be accounted for. Well, at the same time, is incredibly 
frustratingly shabby and incomplete. Ah. In the kid, we also perhaps just see this rendering of the thinking of it from an O'Connor-esque standpoint, just the all the problems with this human souls, the the human being, inability to live in the world in a way that would make us sublime and transcendent and happy, but all the ways, of course, we poison ourselves and separate ourselves and harm ourselves as well. Either we taint the world or contaminate it for those coming next, or we create all these other problems for ourselves. And in a way, he's the victim of all that, if we look at it in that way as well. So I think, which I think is pretty constant of what you just said also. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, the, right. With the, the very word thalidomide, right? I mean, what, yeah. what, what drug better represents a unfair visitation of harm upon a yeah. person than thalidomide? I mean, yeah. the, the mothers were, of course, harmed, certainly emotionally, emotionally and mentally. But the very child whose existence, should they have survived, is yeah. terrible deformations. So, I, you know, there's no sense that he has a backstory that he's literally a thalidomide kid. Right. That, that's not there. But he's certainly evoking that idea yeah. of a cosmic victim with thalidomide. And yet the thalidomide kid is the one person who's acting for the cosmos, yeah. acting for the divine, acting for base one, acting for the great order, whatever, whatever you want to say. He's still, he's not rejecting it. He's still working for it. So like, oh, great. He's going to illuminate all kinds of things. Nope. He's going to obfuscate constantly, <laughs> comically. I don't think I laughed in The Passenger as much as I've laughed in any McCarthy book. I know people... Gene Harrigan takes the cake for for humor in 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 uh, all of McCarthy, I think, but the thalidomide kid ranks right up there. His yeah. obscene language is. My kids are like, "What are you laughing at?" And she's like, "I can't even begin to tell you for so many reasons. I can't even begin <laughs> for various to tell reasons. You. <laughs> well, even just the alliteration in itself, you know, Jesus, Jessica, you know that the, the constant <laughs> use of that is pretty funny, and you know, there's a playfulness to the language." I mean, a silly placefulness to language. We just don't see it other places in McCarthy. Yeah. And it yeah. it kind of makes you think, wow, look what he can do here. And mm-hmm. you know, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, it's never it's never the emotion anybody walks away most with McCarthy, right? right. It's, it's, it's it's there. It's it's like, oh, did you notice that haunted mansion? I did. I was only paying attention to the roses around the uh, front sure. windows, though. Right. Like, no, I was looking at the ghosts coming out the front door. Yeah, but, exactly. But you noticed the roses. Yeah. Very much as he's operating on various registers, and it's all we can do to keep up with any of them. So I think as we start kind of moving to a little bit of a close here, Brent, you you already let the the horse out of the barn on this one, but we'll go ahead and talk about it. What's your favorite McCarthy novel and why? Oh, okay, so it's it's a Monday afternoon. You were you were asking me on a Monday afternoon because it really it really does change. Okay. And it changes I don't know if we go back to REM, if someone's just, my son just asked me the other week, will you make me an REM playlist? And I feel like, oh, I did it. Like I achieved something as a father. So if my son's listening to Life's Rich Pageant, I'm like, oh, isn't that the greatest album, son? It's that one. So, and I like that, right? It's just, it's like my favorite kid. It just sort of changes based on how you're treating me recently. <laughs> so I, I, I think The Crossing is one 
that I constantly go back to. I do like the more esoteric. Ah. I, I keep using that word metaphysical for lack of, because I don't want to say religious. I don't want to say spiritual necessarily, but I, I, I think I could. Those kind of texts that are concerned with the nature of reality. And the crossing, I, I won't say it does it best, but it's so central to the crossing's vision yeah. that I come back to that one a lot. But it's because of that that I adore Blood Meridian. Ah. It's because of that that I adore the road. And it's because of that that I have, you know, when I first read The the Passenger, I was underwhelmed. Yeah. Um, I came off of The Road, though it wasn't certainly the last book I read of his, but it was still, hey, he figured out how to do one of these esoteric works and also have a real pot boiler of a plot. And I was, I was let's find out what's going on with The Passenger. That airplane, that oil yeah. rig. I'm curious in all this. And God dang it, if he doesn't frustrate every one of those. Although one of the things that came up in Cassie's paper at Symposium was that in early drafts, he's satisfying more of those requests of some of the things that have felt like the result of the novel not being quite finished or unresolved and the well, cor- various stories wrong, we've heard. Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't I, I don't know if it's a screenplay he wrote, an early screenplay, or if it's in a draft of No Country for Old Men. But that that Llewellyn Moss and Ed Tom Bell worked together to get Anton Chigurh. So he he scales this idea of I'm going to build out a plot that's much more yeah, that's expected. In the, that's in the screenplay version. Is of it in, okay? The very so, first version of No Country. So I, you know, I I I, I want to be honest. I want to know what's going on with the passenger. I yeah. want to. I'm I'm not satisfied with that. So that's still an absence for me. But the presence of the thalidomide kid commenting on the rest of the both of those books moves it into into something that i've I, i've thoroughly enjoyed you know outer dark same way there's these 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 questions that yeah sort of haunt me long answer to a straightforward question but yeah call me back call me back tomorrow i'll tell you something different well several of the earliest guests on the podcast just refused to come down of one book it says this one on the and it's that one it's this one and it's that one and I will say that I've been very pleased that The Crossing is one of the answers that has steadily been rising both on the podcast and I believe people's estimation over the years. There were a number of people early on who were blown away with it. But a lot of people said, oh, it's just too talky. Nothing much is going on after the wolf is killed. And I think, wow, you know, I totally understand you reading the book is kind of a part one, part two, and part three, and there's a lot to that, but to take that middle part after the wolf and before he goes back for Boyd's body and to just relegate it to, there's a lot of talking going on. It just offends me that that's how someone could read that book and that's all they take from it. And I want to say, go back to it one more time. And I will say, I've kept going back to The Passenger and Stella Morris, and I've now completing my fourth reading of the passenger and the book continues to grow in many ways. My estimation, I'm still not convinced there's not some things there that had he not been feeling ill and kind of had the book come on when it did, it may not have been resolved a little more to our aesthetic pleasure, but from a, again, metaphysical standpoint, I think maybe he had it all there. Do you think there's something, do you think there's something to the idea, Scott, that, 
and maybe drafts would would will show this in the archives yeah, which is a hope he's right? putting stuff in the passenger just to get it out there something like the jfk conversation the vietnam stories is he is, is this ending up of a uh you know an elderly man's bucket that he's just i i want this in there and so he's he's inserting it I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, I'm I'm convinced that a lot of the Vietnam stories are dual references to both Hemingway and Tim O'Brien, um, as I talked about, you know, briefly in the paper I gave out there. And there are many, many other in, intertextual and intratextual things he's doing. Brian Gimza points out the whole point idea of the missing plane and the various planes you bring back and how each plane is different as a stand in for different ways of telling stories that we see in the crossing is exactly what's going on in the passenger. So that halfway through the book, we found out as a child, he found another plane out in the woods that was undiscovered. Mm -hmm. And here we find the plane, but we sure don't find whoever is supposed to have been in it. I don't know if I still am resolved in terms of being at a place where having an intellectual metaphorical understanding of what it means completely satisfies me from a plot perspective. But I definitely can say that I enjoy going back to these books and wrestling with things that are most important in them, which are not the plot questions. Yeah. And I, I, I love where Bobby ends up. I obviously don't like where, where Alicia ends up, but I love where the book Stella Maris ends up. Yeah. What ends up being his, last words that he has published at least in his lifetime we'll see what happens after but at least in his lifetime so the reaching out for the hand i love how both of these books loose ends as i feel like there are in them or like maybe right. not Stella Maris. and that's one of the that's one of the problems of like saying like oh maybe he's trying like the jfk conversation maybe he's just trying to sneak something in there but but Stella Maris is tight yeah that's, that's a yeah. tight work yeah it is so why why shouldn't the passenger be as well but I, I, where those books end up, the places he sort of lands, as confusing and as ambivalent as it might be, I, they're really satisfying landing spots for me. Right. Absolutely. And if nothing else, all of us are wanting to look through our little slot in the door at McCarthy's Genius and see if we can comprehend everything he was doing. And it might be, it's like Dostoevsky, 100 years from now, we're still having these conversations. Maybe not you and I particularly, but someone is. <laughs> you know, I when when he when he passed away, I just taught the class this past spring, and you know, my thought was, oh, I had taught this class, and I could always say, you know, we're a great book school, and this guy is already in the he's already in the canon, and he's alive, right? And then from that moment on, it's like, oh, now it's just going to be he died a year ago, he died three yeah. years ago, he died five years ago, and time, you know. It, it, McCarthy, as a human being, I feel like I know him on some level because he's so interested in the idea of oblivion. Yeah. He's so interested in the idea of not just when you die, but when the people who loved you die, mm. you are gone and all graves will go unattended. And the the just complete dissatisfaction with that and horror at that right. just just reads on just a on a personal level and a I don't know. It's it's close to my own heart, and I feel it then with his own passing. And as of course, his books are going to survive, but it's just time that undefeated march of time. Just uh, yeah, it's it, it's worthy of the gothic. It's worthy of strange plots. You know, if he had died at 
the age of 62, which is when Hemingway and Faulkner, neither one of them made it past 62, then that would have been 1995. Wow. So we'd have probably had the end of, we'd assume we'd had enough cities that are playing written. So he would have finished the border trilogy, but we would have been denied these last two novels plus no country for old men and the road and sunset limited. So it's a whole thank, career right there. It's a, whole, That's career a whole career in itself. There are very few writers who can publish four novels and a play that good. And to think he did all that again, after his two of his predecessors died makes you appreciative that we did get all this last 20 years of his life, last 30 years of his life that they were denied in some ways, 20 something years, I should say. Well, thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Brent Klein. He's published articles and chapters involving disability in literature with Walker Percy, James Agee, Daniel Keyes. His review of The Passenger Stella Morris was published with the University of Bookman. He teaches a seminar at McCarthy every couple of years. Thanks also, as always, to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, and produced the theme music and interludes for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope that someday they'll see the light. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. I am still nominally on Twitter or TwitX. I wanted to call it Twix, but the candy bar company might complain. And so the website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show a cappuccino. Thanks for listening.